James 3, verses 13 through 18. Hear once again God's holy and inspired word. For the grass withers and the flower fades. His word endures forever. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, we come before your word now and ask that you would give us your grace and your spirit once again to know and to understand uh, that you would allow this word to take root in our hearts and transform us, that we might live to be more like you, that you would give us wisdom. Your word says that you give wisdom to those who ask and we desperately need it, but we do thank you that this wisdom is your gift, that you give it freely and generously to those who ask in sincerity. And we ask then that you would be with us in these moments and your servant as he declares your word. In Christ's name, amen. Dear people of the Lord Jesus Christ, if I were to tell you to picture a wise sage What do you see in your mind? Perhaps you see a man who is sitting, maybe cross-legged, as the kids say now, crisscross applesauce, and maybe people are coming before him. The idea is you're you're coming to this wise sage, and you kind of lay out uh, your, your life's questions before him, and he can answer on a number of subjects. He can give advice. He can Uh, speak in ways that that seem to speak to you. This is kind of the picture that we have of the wise sage, but that communicates something, doesn't it? It in itself is almost, it's this, this false and twisted image of how we ought to think of God. We come to God for His wisdom, and we we come before Him. And that picture of sitting there, and you come to me so that I may share with you my great wisdom, is, uh, is a picture that communicates something. But biblical wisdom gives us a different picture, a different kind of person, not someone who would sit there and say, you all fellow human beings, you come to me that I may share my wisdom with you. But biblical wisdom says first and foremost that we go to stand before God, and, and all that we do, we do in light of knowing that He exists, that He is real, that we live with a deference to Him, that we, we owe Him something. And it's not a picture of inactivity. The wise sage is thought of as a man who, 
who sits and, and does not move much, and everyone comes to him to hear of his wisdom. But biblical wisdom is not a picture of inactivity. It's filled with righteous fruit, and it's righteous fruit that's all colored with that very rare virtue, the virtue that comes through God's grace and through knowledge not only of Him as the Holy One, but through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and it is the virtue of humility. And here is what we'll be thinking about today. True wisdom is found in recognizing one's place before God. It is found in believing in Jesus Christ, and it is found in seeking purity, peace, and righteousness before God's face. True wisdom is found in recognizing one's place before God, in believing in Jesus Christ, and in seeking purity, peace, and righteousness before the face of God. We'll think of three things, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of Christ, and the wisdom of heaven. The wisdom of the world, the wisdom of Christ, and the wisdom of heaven. First, the wisdom of the world. Very basically, here's what we can see about the wisdom of the world. It does not understand life as quorum Deo. It does not understand life as before the face of God. In other words, all that we do, we understand that God sees, that He searches our hearts, and everything about our lives is to be, is to be done first and foremost with our, uh, our hearts oriented towards Him. James calls those who would want to be thought of as wise to step forward. Who is wise and who is understanding among you? Uh, in the ancient world, the idea of kind of conferring degrees and those who were thought of as philosophers and very wise, it was much less programmatic. Uh, a PhD program wasn't the way it was today. You really would kind of have a more informal track of training, perhaps under a mentor. Think of all the great philosophers who were mentored by other great philosophers mostly. And there would come a day where their wisdom, their knowledge would have a, a public hearing. Come and try your knowledge. Try your wisdom, the breadth of all that you know. Try it against those who have already ascended to that place, who are already thought of as extremely wise and knowledgeable. So you have that in the background, and, and James, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, let those who think of themselves as wise, let those who believe they have understanding step forward. But then it takes an unexpected turn, doesn't it? For it's not that they would come forward, that they may speak of wise things. It's not that they would come forward so that their ideas might be tried. Let his life show forth humility. That's what James says. We might gloss verse 13 this way. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him prove it by a humble lifestyle befitting of wisdom. If you say you are wise, in other words, we will see that you are wise. And seeing that you are wise, we will see, perhaps primarily, first and foremost, that you are humble. So two basic things that James is saying. True wisdom produces good works. We've already dealt with that uh, throughout this letter, and especially at the end of, of chapter 2. True wisdom produces good works, and true wisdom produces humility, that very rare virtue that God gives us by His grace. Now, perhaps these 
would have been those from among the church generally that wanted to be teachers. Remember the, the beginning of verse 3, or chapter 3, James says to, to all of the church, not many of you ought to seek to ascend to the office of teacher, because we know that many people battle wanting to do this out of a heart that is not right. And there can be very there are a few things that are more disastrous for the church than to one, one, for one to ascend to that office of minister for the wrong reasons, to be thought well of uh, by men. And so perhaps this is what's going on there. Those who are stepping forward want to be thought of as wise, wanting to put their knowledge and their understanding on display. And of course, we see here the need for those who would do that, for those who, who teach the church, for those uh, who say they are immersing themselves in God's Word and God's truth. There ought to be a relationship between that and what is reflected in their lives. I don't think of myself as holier than all of you, but indeed ministers are to immerse themselves in the Word of God. And there is to be a, a transformation that happens because of that, to be familiar with the things of God. And if you are doing that in all sincerity then how unfitting it is for those who ascend to that place as ministers or officers in the church who have a lifestyle that does not reflect all the things that God calls us to. So we're commended unto wisdom. We are commanded to be wise. There are many places where biblical wisdom and Greek, Greco-Roman wisdom have some confluence, have some agreement. Here is one place where they actually diverge. The Greeks did not highly prize wisdom. They, they, they saw it as, as something that wasn't befitting of a man of noble learning. If you have greater understanding, if you have a greater knowledge than most of those around you, why would you be humble? But look at the teaching of Jesus and how he parts ways. Blessed are the meek, the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus says himself, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart or meek and lowly. Really, it's two words, two different words for humble. I am humble and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Why is Jesus humble? We know that he is. We rejoice that he is, but but why is he humble? We've been walking through the Heidelberg Catechism And we have just kind of finished that great long exposition about Jesus being the perfect Savior. There is no Savior that is like Him. There is no one who could have been as perfect as He is. And indeed, His humility is a big part of that. And as we've thought about even today, the idea of coming to Jesus. We come to Jesus and we do not find one who turns up His nose at us. But because He is meek and because He is lowly, because He is humble, He is one who accepts sinners and is happy to do so for those who come to Him wanting to rely upon Him and trust Him. So we rejoice in His humility, but there's there's much more to His humility as well. Jesus being humble teaches us the true meaning of what it means to be human. Jesus is divine, right? He is the God-man, thus He is worthy of all praise. But as Jesus takes on human flesh, as Jesus takes on, as the Son of God takes on a human nature, He shows us the kind of posture that is fitting for all human beings. He shows us the kind of posture that we ought to have in recognizing our place before God 
as human beings. He shows us that true humanity, Jesus is the truest human who has ever lived. He shows us that true humanity recognizes the Creator first and foremost, and all of life lived in the shadow of the Creator. This is wisdom. This is where wisdom begins. In other words, to be a human being is to recognize that you have a Creator and that all you do, every aspect of your life, is to be affected with that knowledge. All is done in light of Him. Jesus shows us the humility that is fitting for all human beings. To lack humility, then, is to do what? It's to deny reality. If anyone is filled with arrogance, it's simply to deny reality. It's, as James says, to be false to the truth, which is just another way of saying you're living in a way that goes against the grain of everything in the cosmos. You should not be filled and puffed up with arrogance because you are forgetting the fundamental truths about who you are. You've been created, and you owe all to your Creator, and you ought to fall down before Him, giving all to Him. To lack humility is to deny reality. I saw a picture this week. It was a picture of a blank legal pad, you know, those yellow legal pads, and it said, this is a comprehensive list of all the things you have earned and everything that you deserve. All of the things that we have, ultimately, fundamentally, why do we have them? Why are we living and breathing right now? Did we do anything to deserve being created by God? Have we done anything, ultimately? And we know in this life there is relationships between work and wages, between diligence and reward. We're not talking about that on a human-to-human level, horizontal level, we need to understand and know that. But ultimately, where do we have all of the things that we enjoy in this life? All the blessings that we have, they have come from God. And if we begin to think that we have earned things from the Lord, that the Lord owes us something, then we are on a very dangerous track indeed. One author says this, Christian humility comes from understanding our position as sinful creatures in relation to the glorious and majestic God. That's what Christian humility is all about. We live as sinners before a holy God. And if Jesus humbled himself as the perfect God-man, as the one who himself is fully God, true God, and yet took to himself a human nature, yet remains sinless, if he humbles himself before God, then how unfitting it is if we were to live without humility. What comes into a heart that is absent of humility? Envy and strife. How does James describe it to us? Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. I think the King James, the old King James says envy and rivalry. They're two things that are, are related. So a heart that is lacking virtue will be filled with vice. Nature abhors a vacuum. You know that saying, right? And a heart that has no virtue will be filled with vice. Those who are not humble think basically two things. I should have more and others should have less. I should have more and others should have less than I do. This is envy and strife. Envy is a self-oriented desire to possess things which are not ours. 
And strife is the selfish ambition to be above those around you. I want more, and I want more than what he has. James says, and we know, we understand how this can be true, that wisdom brings peace. What does envy bring? Disorder and every vile practice. If you have people running around a community that want more than what they have, they lust after having more, and they believe that others should have less, are those going to be ingredients for a a peaceful community? If it's in a home, is the home going to be peaceful? If it's in a church, is the church going to be peaceful? If it's in a workplace, is the workplace going to be peaceful? No, of course not. Look at the book of Genesis. Cain wanted what Abel got because of his envy, bitter jealousy. He killed him. And we see from that the seeds of that envy and strife leading us all the way to the flood in Genesis 6 where evil had permeated every, just about every corner of the world. What did Sarah want? She wanted what Hagar had. Rachel and Leah, wasn't that about envy and strife? Joseph and his brothers, what possesses the brothers to throw Joseph into a pit and to get rid of him? It was envy and it was strife. See how disorder comes from this envy. What is really the the, the root problem with envy? What is it? What does it come from? You lust after things that you do not have. And you want the person around you. You you rejoice in the failures of others. And you cannot rejoice when they have blessing and when they succeed. Where does that come from? It comes from a heart that is faithless, doesn't it? Because you are unwilling to accept that God truly is good. That God truly is the one who is in control of your life. And you are unwilling to accept that joyfully and with contentment. This is the essence of the wisdom from below. And how does it color your life? Well, the wisdom from below is earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic, as James says. What does it mean that something is earthly or the wisdom from below is earthly? You know, the envy gives rise to covetousness, or you see how those two would be very closely related. Covetousness is an earthbound vice. It's an earthbound vice because if your heart is filled with envying, with bitter jealousy, with strife, and with coveting, it means that you do not understand this life as being here. You are here in order to be made ready for what is ultimate. The horizon of this world is not all there is for you. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all the things that we tend to be anxious about, all the things that we tend to worry about, will be added unto you. Believe and trust in your heavenly Father. Seek first the kingdom. Set your mind on things that are above, Colossians 3. Be filled with a a heavenly mindedness. But if the horizon of this world is all that there is, if this life, if you have one shot then you can see how your heart would be filled with covetousness. You had better get it now. It is earthly, the wisdom from below, the wisdom of the world that does not first recognize its place before a creator and thus cannot see past the horizon of this world is earthly. It's earthbound. It's unspiritual. In in the New Testament, we have the dichotomy of the spirit and the flesh. Those who walk by the Spirit 
They will not gratify the desires of the flesh. They will mortify the deeds of the flesh. Romans 8 and Galatians 5. But those who are filled with lustful desires, who are led by those base desires, sins like gluttony, drunkenness, sexual immorality, they are unspiritual. And again, there's a logical progression to this, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Because again, if this world is all that you have, then why would you not be obsessed with, with pursuing every pleasure that you can? This is why the Bible says the gospel of grace teaches us to say no to worldly desires and fleshly lusts. If you have an earthbound perspective, then what good is it to say no? But for the one who walks by the Spirit, saying no is what it means to be free in Christ. It is to live spiritually. In other words, like we have a soul. To be unspiritual is to live like an animal. Animals won't be able to comprehend and understand why it might be good to say no to your base desires. You give a a treat to your dog, the dog is not going to understand why he would ever pass up on that. But to someone who struggles with gluttony, they learn to understand why it's good that I indeed need to sometimes say no to certain things. The soul that God has given to us imbues all that we do with this deeper sense of meaning. We're not just following around our fleshly lusts and base animal desires, but that's the wisdom from below. How can they say no? People might understand that, oh, doing that just becomes unwise in some sense, but ultimately, how can they provide an argument against those who would seek pleasure and only pleasure? The wisdom from below is also demonic. We are to live honoring God, but the wisdom from below tips a cap. It is a lie, right? The the earth, the horizon of the earth is where it ends. Seek every pleasure while you can. It's a lie that tips its cap to the father of lies. It's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. This is the wisdom from below. How do we begin to seek the wisdom from below? above. We begin to seek the wisdom from above at the fount of wisdom. Where does wisdom begin? It begins in and through Jesus Christ. It begins in the gospel of grace. It is in Christ that we see the wisdom of God on display, and we also see the greatest example of wisdom that is personified. We see the wisdom of God on display in the beauty of our redemption. We have been lavished with God's riches and all the wisdom and insight. Ephesians 1 colors this as God's wisdom. The the apex of God's redemptive plan, which is supremely wise, brings to us the Savior, Jesus Christ. This is where everything, everything is leading to Jesus. All of God's plan for all times is leading us to God the Son. And so what do we do? What are we called to do? To believe and to embrace the one whom God has provided. The first act of wisdom, the one that sets us on the path towards living with the wisdom of God and the righteousness that flows from it, is embracing the Son of God whom God has provided for our redemption. On the road to Emmaus, when Jesus uh, comes to those two disciples who are distraught, 
believing that Jesus has been crucified and it's all over, what does he say? He says, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. Wisdom begins with embracing Jesus Christ by faith. It's the picture of the wise men. Why have they been preserved throughout history? What, is the, what did they do? They first went to Jesus. And thus, if you are wise, you will seek Him, and you will come to Him too. So ask yourselves, brothers and sisters, have you gone to the fount of wisdom? Is your pursuit of wisdom beginning there in Jesus Christ at the fount of wisdom? First Corinthians 1 says this, Because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So come to the fount of wisdom. This this is where it begins, by embracing the one whom God has provided in His wisdom. We also see in Jesus Christ wisdom personified, wisdom put on display. Jesus showed us how to rightly value this life in relation to the next. He shows us what it means to live as a wise human being. Hebrews 12 says what? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He suffered, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus understood in a fallen world, suffering comes before glory. Bitter must come before the sweet. And thus, First Peter tells us, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that at the proper time He may exalt you. That rhythm that Jesus shows to us is one that we are to follow and to emulate because He shows us the true meaning of things. He shows us why we are to value the next life and how this one is to serve that one, to have a heavenly mindedness. Jesus lived with a, a perfect fear of the Lord. Isaiah 11 talks about the seven blessings that the Messiah was to have. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And that same Spirit that He gives to us will then equip us to have all of those things. The Spirit, uh, we have the Spirit of the Lord through Christ, spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Because of this, we can live heavenly and spiritual and God-glorifying lives. Titus 2 says this, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The grace of God trains us to say no to the the, the worldly passions and to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Those three almost perfectly mirror, don't they? The earthly, the unspiritual, and the demonic. Not being led by your base animal desires, seeking the righteousness that comes from God, and, uh, and honoring Him rather than tipping our cap to the father of lies. Those who begin this pursuit of wisdom in Christ are given the wisdom from heaven. And we're given this wonderful verse at the end, this kind of heightened prose. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. It's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it's impartial and sincere. The wisdom from above is first pure. 
we are to seek a pure life. We are to seek to reflect God's character and also understand our own deficiencies. How do we live wisely? We live trying to emulate the character of God and also understand where we ourselves can fall. And this purity that we are commended to is really all that follows it are divisions of that purity. So first, pure. We are to seek to live an undefiled and blameless life before God, but we do so with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We do so understanding how we have obtained a place before God through the gospel of grace. But the wisdom from above is first pure. Then it is peaceable. So so peaceable has that, that, that second place, kind of, Uh, chief among all of the other virtues. The next three, though, peaceable, gentle, and open to reason, are are grouped together in the Greek. They start with the same letter, and there's some phonetic similarities. You understand he's doing them in, in groups. To be peaceable governs all of our interactions with others. We are to seek peace with all. To be gentle is how we react to the actions of others, To be open to reason is how we think about our own ideas and actions. So peaceable, gentle, open to reason is kind of this three-pronged way to think about the way, how do you interact with other people? How do you work through difficulties? Are you seeking peace? Strive for peace with all men. Strive for peace which reflects the kind of peace that God has created with you through His grace. Are you gentle? Uh, One author says this, wise Christians, in weighing an action, always allow for human frailty. It's essentially to be charitable in judging the actions of others, to not always make the worst of matters, to not impute the worst motives to other people, but to be gentle, to favorably judge, to not be harsher than God in the way that we react to the actions of others. To be open to reason. All of us struggle with this. So nobody likes to change their mind. Nobody likes to change their position on something. And this is not uh, kind of saying that this is how we think about standing for the truth. In, in uh, the, the way the verse unfolds, it's really the way that we interact with and love others and live in community. Are we open to reason? Are we willing to to not be obstinate? Are we unpliable when we are confronted with something? So that governs the way that we treat others. Full of mercy and good fruits. We are to be filled with mercy and good fruits because God has been merciful to us and God works in us to fill our life, our lives with good fruits. We are to be merciful to those who offend us, and to those who have need. Those are really the the two categories of mercy that we see most often in Scripture. Be merciful to the one who, who has need around you. Reach out to your brothers and sisters when they are in need and help them. And also when someone offends you, be merciful and forgive. Full of mercy and good fruit. Religion is not a, a barren tree, but bears the fruits of righteousness. We are impartial and sincere. We know what impartial means. This could mean not being partial towards others. It also could mean not having a divided heart, 
not yourself being divided as to your loyalty. So it may be another way of saying, uh, be pure and undefiled. Have all that you are oriented towards the glory of God. To be sincere means literally to not play a part, to not be play-acting. You're not in some production taking on a character. This is truly who you are. And you understand that God is the one who searches hearts. And so how foolish it is to live a life of hypocrisy. He is the one who looks inward and sees who we truly are. Impartial and sincere. And then we end. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The righteous living to which we are called will not flourish in a context of human anger, envy, strife, and rivalry. But righteous living can grow in an atmosphere of those who are pure, peaceable, seeking God's wisdom in Christ, who are gentle and open to reason, who are full of mercy and good fruits. It's like the tongue in, at the beginning of chapter 3, but the opposite. The tongue is a fire, and those who are enslaved to the sinfulness of the tongue set things in their lives on fire, which in turn catch fire for other things. But a harvest of righteousness is sown by those who make peace, by those who are peaceable. Righteous living can flourish for those who are first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then open to reason, not only in your own lives, The primary outlook for James here is the community, the community of people. Righteous living can flourish when we live according to the wisdom from above, when we live according to the wisdom from heaven. Who is wise and who is understanding among us? It's not the one who brags of knowledge and of understanding. It's the one who lives understanding his place before God. It's the one who abides in Jesus Christ, who does that first act of wisdom, embracing the one whom God has brought to us. He is the fount of wisdom. He is also wise in understanding who reflects the virtues of the wisdom from above, has been changed to live according to all of these things. May God give us the grace and the courage to live according to this heavenly wisdom that he gives us through the grace of his Son. Let's pray.